Oh yes. Another week, uh, ATP podcasting it, baby. This music gives me life every time I hear it. <laughs> All right. ATP Podcast, we are back again. It's your boy Jay, and I got Fig in the building. Uh, he's going by Fig now? He's just gonna, for this one. Just for this one, huh? <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got uh, episode 49 here. And talk to me, man. What's new? What's going on? First off, I'm going to give a shout out to my team, Sanji. Uh-oh. I'm forcing them to listen to this episode. Okay. So uh, they put the pressure on me. They said, Fig... You better deliver. I don't want to waste 35, 40 minutes of my uh, life. Their short lives yeah, that they lived. their lives. <laughs> so they're all right. The pressure's on, but I do well under pressure. So Ooh. guys, I hope you guys enjoy. Speaking of doing well under pressure, uh, what are we talking about this week, man? Well, we're going to start with Sloan Stevens. What's Sloan going on? Stevens wins a match. Now, <laughs> normally this would be a social topic especially in this episode uh-huh. but the stat that i found was just crazy why is it crazy last time we spoke we spoke about should sloan stevens retire yeah i'm gonna see if i can change your mind in 2017 sloan stevens won the u.s open okay in 2018 she lost to the finals in some to simona Halep at the french open okay since then in may of 2019 to 2021 uh-huh she has only made it past the second round in uh, a tournament a total of four times. Oh, my God. <laughs> she has not won a match in 2021 until Miami. Wow. With that said, do you still think that Sloane Stevens should retire? I think that with that said, she is in tremendous trouble. And um, she needs to she needs to take a hiatus and maybe reevaluate. I oh man retires. I get it. I get it. Uh, it sounds like she needs to retire. You know, we see a lot of players uh, they kind of disappear when they have stats like that. Um, she definitely has retirement in the near future statistics. So uh, anyone who says she needs to retire, I'm gonna go ahead and say yeah. It's just crazy to think someone who was in a Grand Slam semifinal, what, two years ago, is in this place now? That's that's outrageous. So, I don't know. I, I'm going to have to understand your stat and say, maybe she needs to retire. Let's just say that we do know that um, the rankings are a little bit padded. We're going to talk about that a little later. Mm-hmm. But right now, she is between 50 and 60 in the world. Can you imagine if the ranking was not padded? Yeah, it's going to be hard for her to come back. But uh, speaking of coming back, uh, what are we talking about next? We're going to talk about Bianca Andreescu. Woo! I like Andreescu a lot, Now, she, if you haven't seen her play, you should definitely see her play. She is a mix of Martina Hingis with power. Mm. She is a really good point construction player. She Mm -hmm. moves people around. Very smart player. Yeah, she's clean. Now, before I go into what she did in Miami... She is sort of similar to Kei Nishikori. Okay. She is injury prone. So she's made of paper is what you're trying to say. Okay. She is 20 years old. She's had shoulder issues. We saw in 2018, she had the meniscus tear in the WTA final. Oh, man. 
she hasn't played mm. until uh, Australia. Mm. Didn't play another tournament until now. Mm. Before I go into the Miami results, do you think she can have a lasting career? Um, I'll say this. Uh, Kami Shikori was in the U.S. Open final and his body kind of ran out of gas. But Kami Shikori, unlike Sloane Stevens, still is relevant on the tour, although he's not a dominant factor on the tour. I think that at the absolute worst, Andrescu could do that. We could see her, you know, floating through the top 20, you know, present in certain tournaments, runs here and there. Um, If she continues at the rate of injury she's at now, I don't see her being a dominant force on the tour. But I do see her having a long career still. It just won't be the one that her trajectory showed us in the beginning. So hopefully she can get it together. You know, it doesn't seem like her play style is super injury prone. No, it shouldn't be. Yeah. Now, she made it to the semis. She won today in Mm -hmm. Miami. She's beaten uh, Amanda Anasimova, who is an up-and-comer. She beat Garvinia Muguruza, who's one of the hottest um, people on tour. Mm-hmm. Does that victory to you tell you anything about Andreski? Do you think she's back? Yes, uh, she's definitely back. She's Those are two respectable wins. Uh, if I remember correctly, her next match is against the player. I feel like we're jumping the gun on news here. But a player who beat the player to beat on the tour. Um, so she's playing Sakari next. And if she wins that, put a stamp on it. She's back officially. She's a factor. So I'm really looking forward to her next match. Fair I think enough. that um, some people, depending on when they listen, that match will have already happened. So, you know, they can check the results and stats on that. Right. Moving on. Mm-hmm. Osaka is homesick. Perfect now, transition. <laughs> now, this is. This is interesting. Before the Miami Open, she mm. said, I am not the person to play week in, week out. Mm. I get homesick. <laughs> I know that my French Open results are not that good, mm-hmm. but I'm a type of person who likes to go to a specific tournament and stay there for a couple of weeks preparing. Mm-hmm. And that schedule fits for me. Right. What are your thoughts on her comments? Um, it's tricky. So I think that her saying she likes to be there for a while, get immersed, train there, get ready. I think that's accurate. You know, um, we're obviously not professional athletes, but we can kind of relate. You've been in tournaments where maybe you had warm up time of five minutes and then you're playing. And you've also had maybe some more laid back competitive places where maybe you showed up. There weren't as many people there. You got to play on the courts a little more. You got to see the weather and feel the vibes. Get your timing right. Get acclimated. And it's much less anxiety when you walk on the court in those situations. I think that um, that's probably ideal for all players, you know. And when you're seated number one in the world, you could probably spare a few points by not doing some of the tune-up tournaments prior and maybe showing up to your slam a lot earlier and not playing. The question is, will the tour allow that? This is the thing. She contradicts herself a lot. Yeah. There's a commercial, Yonix, mm-hmm. where she says, I want to be here to where players call me and say, I was their idol. Mm-hmm. But yet she's going to make that comment of, I'm not a week in, week out type player. That's yeah. con- that's, that's, it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. You don't expect that type of behavior from the number two player in the world. It's also an age thing, if you ask me as well. 
you expect the younger players to play about 20 tournaments a year. So, you know, a, a ballpark number between 20 and 25 tournaments a year. Um, I remember Dominic Team was playing 26 tournaments in one year at one point. And it's weird to me that someone like her who's on the grind trying to make a legacy. I feel like the tour is transitioning into they're making the smaller tournaments much more irrelevant and less popular. We're going to see them doing whatever they can to skip the 250s and 500s unless it's a favorable win for them. If it's a tournament they don't think they'll win for sure, I think a lot of players are going to be showing up a lot less. Now, as I stated, you don't expect that type of behavior from the number one player in the world. Right. You're expecting the tenacity, the heart. Mm-hmm. You're not expecting that sort of work ethic right. on the number one player in the world. That's true. As a matter of fact, I have a, a story. Pete Sampras won the U.S. Open at the age of 19. Mm-hmm. The very next year, he lost mm-hmm. in the uh, either the fourth round or the quarterfinals. Uh-huh. He said... I feel relieved mm-hmm. by losing. The weight is off my back. Yeah. Uh, Connors and McEnroe gave him the speech of his life and told him <laughs> that's not the mentality of a champion. If you're going to think that way, you don't deserve to be a champion. They're not wrong. So Osaka is in the same boat, basically. Yeah. Um, we, we know Osaka has had very unorthodox mentality when it comes to being on the tour you know the the quirky post-conference interviews and the attitude like with uh her opponents and stuff like that maybe being overly supportive or under supportive or not aggressive but also wanting to win you know it's just very unusual we don't see that behavior from other players on the tour so i think that she may be pioneering a very unideal personality that may be on the tour a lot more than we think um she's a new generation of player um and a lot of the younger kids maybe aren't as much of workhorses as we think you know i mean I'm, i agree i'm i'm thinking that's probably the future of tennis so you know that's going to separate the the Djokovic's though from the Andy Murray's, not to say Andy Murray wasn't a workhorse, but, you know, the results, the numbers. Right. You know, to to break historical records, Yes. there's no shortcuts. Now, talking about being homesick, yeah. I have a story. Okay. Martina Navratilova, mm-hmm. she left the che- uh, Czechoslovakia. Yeah. She was the main player for their Fed Cup team. Mm-hmm. They didn't allow her to leave Czechoslovakia because they wanted her to represent them in Fed Cup. She wasn't allowed to leave to the Grand Slams without their permission. Wow. So all of a sudden, she goes to the U.S. Open one Mm -hmm. year and doesn't say anything. She Mm -hmm. defected, became an American citizen. Wow. She knew the risk of leaving her parents behind, Mm -hmm. never being able to talk to them again. Mm -hmm. And she had the mental tenacity to go through. You're talking about homesick. She deserves to say that. Yeah. When Osaka said that, she she's pretty close to losing my respect. She's going to have to step <laughs> it up. Seriously. That's understandable. Uh, I feel like the only place she demands respect is maybe on a hard court. Right. You know, everywhere else outside of that, she just seems like a high school girl, you know? Very she's, go ahead. young. She's very young-minded. She said 
she needs to improve for the French Open, but yet she was uh, um, going to play in Stuttgart, which is a, 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 a clay court event, yeah. and she withdrew. Yeah, I don't understand it. Now, going on to uh, a little moral soccer news, mm. she finally lost for the first time in 13 months right. to Maria Sakari. Yeah. If you haven't seen her workouts, they're beast mode. Sakari looks like she has right. beast workouts. Sakari right. looks incredible. Right. Now, here's the thing. Osaka, they padded her, her thing a little bit. Mm-hmm. They say that she hasn't lost in 13 months. We uh. do know that in March, the tennis stopped. Right. All the way to August. Right. Right. The women after the U.S. Open went to the French Open. And unfortunately for them, they had the Asian swing. Mm-hmm. And due to the COVID, they didn't go to Asia. Mm-hmm. So you can count out seven months, technically yeah. speaking. Yeah. But they're trying to make it a big deal, whatever. Yeah. Now, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Martina Navratilova said she's undefeated, mm-hmm. but I don't think it should count. And here's why. She did not play the French Open. She withdrew. Right. And she said, when you withdraw, you should get canceled out. Your winning streak should be done. Do you agree with that? Um, yes and no. Um, I don't think your winning streak should be cut, but I don't think we should make significance of it. You know, not playing is not the same as playing and losing, but also not playing is retreating, you know? So for example, if you go to war, you know, and you retreat, did your men get killed? No. Did you win the war? No. You know, so I don't think there's any significance or accolades that should go with that kind of withdrawal. Especially when it's on your weakest surface, you know, it's it just seems a bit cowardly, you know, exactly. so I don't think that we should be making this a big significant thing when, you know, a lot of the months were no tennis and then, you know, it was her two best slams. That's where most of her wins were. So I think that we should talk more about her streak and her record after this clay swing. If she wins the French, let's talk big money. Let's talk. But until then, you know, she backed out of Stuttgart. She backed out of the French. Half of last year was no tennis. Let's not talk about win streaks right now unless you're Rublev, you know? Yes, exactly. So I agree with you 100%. Yeah. Now, this is an interesting uh, topic. I've been back and forth on this one. Benoit Pair could be facing suspension and maybe even being thrown out of the ATP. Here's what he did. Uh-oh. He's not smart. To tell you the truth. We, we kind of knew that, right? Yes. We kind of knew that. He's been playing tournaments and purposely losing in the first round. Mm-hmm. He stated, I'm here to collect the money. <laughs> in a Masters 1000 event, if you lose in the first round, you get around 10, 10 grand. Right. He said, this is his words, if you win a 250 event, you only win 30 grand. Mm-hmm. For losing the first round in the Masters 1000, you get a grand, a, mm. a 10 grand, sorry. Right. Why are you going to risk your body and put that much effort yeah. when I can just collect and go to the next tournament? Mm-hmm. He said that um, quarantining is extremely tough. Yeah. What are your thoughts on Benoit Pair? So there's a there's a balance here. There's, there's two, two perspectives here. So I'm going to... I'm going to play the devil's advocate here. 
because I don't even like Benoit Pair, but that that's a different conversation. Um, I like him better than Tomic. I he's actually fun to watch. Right, that's the difference between him and Tomic. There's yes. not much else different outside of that. Um, but Benoit Pair is partially right. So if for me to go to a tournament, I have to show up early to not do anything at all in in the name of quarantining. In a sport where people outside the top 100 are underpaid, some even have to pay to be on the tour, it does make 100% sense to only go to big tournaments and collect more money for less time. Because technically speaking, he is spending a week or two. I don't know how long certain tournaments quarantine length is. He's spending half a tournament's length not playing tennis in preparation of playing at least one round. So why would I show up somewhere a week in advance? do my best to win the whole tournament, which he doesn't do well in the first place. Right. And then uh, make less money when I can go to this other tournament, sacrifice my prep by quarantining, and then just losing alone is going to give me 33% of what I would have made if I won the entire other tournament. He makes perfect sense there. This is just logical. Uh, I think that this whole issue stems from the tour's pay being a little imbalanced with the lower seeds and the lower end players. You know, the small tournaments... On top of, you know, all the tournaments now paying significantly less because there's less fans. So, I agree with him. The I think that throwing matches is a major, major issue, and you should get penalized for that, though. I, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he's playing the game, and he's playing it well. Right. Djokovic and uh, Federer and Nadal, when mm-hmm. they were in the um, ATP Council, they made sure that the lower, in, the, the, the lower uh, rounds were getting paid. Right. And now they're getting paid. Back right. in the day, uh, in, in the Masters 1000, you lose in the first round, you hardly get maybe two, three grand. Now wow. it's 10 grand. Yeah, that's so a he's, lot better. So he's playing the game. Yeah. And he knows it. So knowing that, mm-hmm. I mean, it's sort of, I'm not feeling that. There's always going to be bad apples though, in right. any system that caters, you know? Right. This is, this is how government works, you know? This is how everything works, you know? You create a healthy system to take care of uh, people who aren't quite where they want to be. And there's going to be a few people who don't want to be anywhere and they just float. They just kind of get on cruise control, you know, and take advantage. That's fine. You know, don't punish the whole tour for a few bad apples. Right. Get, get this guy, punish him, you know, send him somewhere, do what you need to do. Start, you know, giving him less, uh, make him earn, like maybe qualify, you know, stuff like that. So do what you can. The reason why I was sort of back and forth about it is because mm-hmm. due to the COVID, right. I, I would assume that the quarantining is tough for the players. Yeah. And there's a lot of restrictions. Mm-hmm. So because of that, I'm all, okay, fine. Yeah. If it wasn't for that, I'd be, no, no. I mean, in the long term, his plan doesn't work because if you keep losing in first rounds, your ranking goes and exactly. you can't play in the Masters 1000s anyway. So He's going to have to qualify. Yeah. So then he has to spend time in a tournament that pays less than a 250. Right. Trying to get into a 1000. So it'll work itself out. You know? Exactly. I wouldn't take it personal. Exactly. Moving on. <clears throat> now I'm going to talk about Vasek Pospisil losing his temper. Uh-oh. This is funny. I like Pospisil, by the way. So do I. He's a good doubles <laughs> player. He yeah. played with the best doubles player of all time. Allegedly. Jack Sock. <laughs> I love Jack Sock too. So this is funny. Before Miami, he met with the ATP uh, CEO. Mm-hmm. We do know that him and Djokovic are part of the PTPA. Okay. And he wanted to get certain amenities done for the players. Okay. So we don't know what was said, 
But supposedly, from what I've heard, Vashik Popspisil started to cry because the ATP CEO called him a jerk, basically, and a child. And hmm. Vashik Popspisil lost his cool. Now, here's where the funny part comes in. He was playing Mackenzie McDonald, mm-hmm. and he was on edge. <clears throat> he cracks his racket and gets the warning. Okay. It's 30-40, and he starts cussing out of the blue. Mm-hmm. He just loses his head. He gets the point penalty, loses the set. <gasps> All of a sudden, he just starts cussing. Mm. CEO of the ATP say, what a... Whoa. And just loses it. Mm. And then the umpire said, are you okay? And then he's all, this guy is a... And then all of a sudden, he said, the umpire told him, if you need to talk to him, do it on your own time. Right. Calm down. Mm. Vashik Popspasil said, well, I'm going to do what I want. Mm. If you want to throw me out, throw me out and I'll sue the ATP. Go ahead. I dare you. Mm. What are your thoughts on his reaction? Uh, completely over the top. Completely out of control. Um, it's crazy to see someone that's a part of the Professional Tennis Players Association um, behave this way. You know, he's on a he's on a platform. You know, when you're on a court on a televised tournament. You know, your behavior is broadcasted to all fans, all spectators. You have a responsibility, you know, and it's one thing if you're like a Bernard Tomic or something where you don't care about the platform, you care about your check. But you being a part of the PTPA or whatever, you you know, you're um, I would assume you're showing you care about the platform and you care about the ATP and the perception and these things. You do need to keep those conflicts off the court and behind the scenes. That's literally why you're on that team. So this is confusing to me and a little disappointing, uh, but we're all human. So I will hope that he resolves these issues and um, gets his stuff together. Yeah, stop being a baby. Yeah. If not, don't do it. Right. You know, threatening lawsuits. What are you doing? Exactly. What are you talking about, man? Now, this is the this is another funny part. Mm. The umpire that was threatening to throw him out also had a run-in with another Canadian uh, superstar, Denis Shabobalov. My boy! Uh, I don't know if you remember, during Davis Cup, Denis Shabobalov got so angry, he tried to hit a ball out of the stands. Uh-huh. Unfortunately for the umpire, he hit him right in the eye. Oh, yeah, I do remember that. So that umpire was stuck on the Vasek Popsfasil match. Mm. So if I were him, I would ask the ATP not to put him on a canadian uh <laughs> match ever again in life unless they want ratings okay <laughs> yes exactly so <clears throat> moving on zverev is not done whining this guy he's ridiculous right now hmm. you're talking about a, a crybaby yeah before miami mm-hmm. he said to the um reporters yeah you guys really don't think i should be up one or two spots maybe even three Mm-hmm. I just want Acapulco. What else do I need to do to move up spots? Yeah. What are your thoughts on Zverev continuous whining? It just doesn't make sense to me. He needs to understand that he's in a time in tennis that has never happened before. 
This has never happened in the history of tennis, to my knowledge, you know, especially in the open era, um, you know, where there's a whole wash season due to a quarantine worldwide, you know. So I think that he needs to understand he's just a victim of circumstances. And this is something this is a philosophy I always carry with myself when I play tennis. You want to complain about the, the conditions of the court, but you have to remind yourself you're in the same conditions everyone else on the tour is on or everyone else at your court is on. If it's a really windy day, guess who else is in the wind? Your exactly. opponent. You know, you're both dealing with it. The question is, what will you do with the adversity versus your opponents and everyone else? He needs to remind himself that everyone in the rankings is dealing with the same situation. Maybe it benefits some more than others because they were working hard during another period of time when you weren't. You know, it's just what it is. And time will absolve that. You know, the rankings will become true and accurate in time. But for now, it is what it is. We're all dealing with it. You know, so I think that he's complaining too much. I agree. Now, I'd like to thank Jim Courier for this one. Mm. He brought his A game. During the Dennis Shapovalov match, he brought up a lot of interesting stats. Mm -hmm. He stated, and we, we pretty much knew this. Right. Alexander Zverev last year was last in second uh, 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 second serve points won. 45% <laughs> second serve points won. Yeah. On average, the men hold second serve 55%. So he's 10% below 10% the average. 10% below the average. The average guy on the tour. Not Correct. the top 10. The yes. average guy on the tour. Okay. Right. His first serve percentage is 68%, mm-hmm. which is extremely impressive. Right. Now, here's the question for you. We do know that he really doesn't have a second serve. Mm-hmm. If he were to hit the second serve at the rate that he does his first serve, it would go up from 45% to 52%. Mm-hmm. If he were able to hit the second serve at 68% as he does his first serve. Right. Do you think he can do it, or do you think he should actually try to find a second serve? He needs to find a second serve. Um, I think that no one should be in the top five without a second serve. That's just my bottom line. He's too tall. He's too long. He's too talented to not have a quality second serve. I think that Zverev with a high-quality second serve is a top-four player in the world. I agree. But without that, you know— you're going to continue to have these frustrations with your ranking because you're going to have these hot months where your serves clicking and you're blowing people off the court and you're beating top five players. And then you're going to have these weird dry spells where you're double faulting 35 times in two matches, you know, and we've seen both sides of it. You know, the U S open final is probably the best example I can even imagine for it. He came out firing on all cylinders against a prime Dominic team by the end of the match, he was serving roller serves that I could return, you know. So I'm confused why someone at his level with a team of his caliber, with a budget, you know, the winnings he has, why he can't afford to put together a second serve, you know. Now, this is interesting. He was up two sets to nothing. Yeah. Can you imagine if he held, if he hit uh, 10 consecutive second serves in a row? He'd be a U.S. Open champion. Exactly. You know, and then his ranking would not be in question right now, you know. So, yeah, I think that 
I think that his perspective is a little off. You know, he right. should really reevaluate and think to my, himself, hey, what could I do to change my ranking? Right. Instead of blaming the point structuring system. Exactly. You know, so that's my thoughts on Zverev. Now, I'm going to bring up another stat. Denis Shapovalov, Courier stated, he's double faulting a little more than usual mm-hmm. because he's going for bigger second serves at 102 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Second serve average. Mm-hmm. Pete Sampras, career, average serve, second serve was 115 miles an hour. <sighs> Denis Shapovalov, 6'1 and a half. Pete Sampras, 6'1 and a half. Mm-hmm. What's the difference? I think, I think it's mentality. That would be my guess. We know the Pete Sampras confidence in his serve might be number one in the history of tennis. This is a man. I agree. This is a man who would throw away return games because he exactly. knew he was going to hold serve. Exactly. We don't see any players on the tour like that right now. Um, I think that if he could have that kind of belief system in his service games, um, we may see an, an uptick in his second serve percentage just off mentality alone. Uh, I think that Shapovalov's uh, serve motion is not bad. It's not. You know, I do like his game. I think he has a good game. And I think that we've seen him mentally mature just just in the last year pretty dramatically. You know, you remember the deer in headlights version he yes. played with Federer. Exactly. You know, I don't think that if he saw Federer again, that would happen. He's not doing that again. Yeah. So I have a lot of confidence that uh, he's doing the right thing. Add some miles per hour to that serve. And get acclimated to it. And if you take a few losses in the process, that's part of the game. Right. Uh, it'll be worth it. You know, right. don't pull a, a Zverev. You know, exactly. speaking of where you're rolling at 90 miles per hour, a kicker. <laughs> it's a Dominic team who's eight feet behind the baseline with the biggest forehand on the tour. Right. You know, like, what are you doing? So I like what he's doing. And if he's losing a few points in the process, so be it. That's how you make a Grand Slam champion. So good for him. I agree. I don't mind him trying. Yeah. At all. Moving on, the women's rankings. Mm-hmm. Now, we do know, they just announced, that at the end of the Miami Open, the WTA will now have new rankings. They will no longer have these protective rankings. Okay. I'm not sure about the ATP. Mm-hmm. But here's an interesting stat. Mm-hmm. Osaka, if the real rankings would go on, she'd mm-hmm. be number one. Okay. Here is the kicker. Yes, Azarenka, who is outside of the top 10, Uh would be in the top five. Igas Viacek, who's Mm. outside of the top 10, would be number three. Whoa. You're talking about beef. Yeah. They have major league beef. Yeah. Because if they were ranked that high, Mm. they would have their own quarter. Right. Instead of playing a Barty who's the number one player in the world, in the fourth round. Right, So right. if somebody has beef, it's them. As they should. Zverev needs to be quiet. <laughs> what are your thoughts? Uh, I think that I'd love to see those true rankings. I would love to, the way Azarenka's working and playing, I would love to see her get a nicer draw and maybe make a bigger run. You know, I think that she deserves it. So, yeah. And, I mean, we both know Iga's doing damage this year. Oh, yes. So, yeah. Um, you said that's happening soon? Yes, uh, after the Miami Open. Okay, that's going to be crazy to see. We're definitely going to have to do a little research and see what kind of predictions we can make going forward after that. So uh, that affects the French Open draw, right? Yes. Okay, so yeah, the French Open is going to be a sight to see. Osaka had a chance to retake the number one uh, ranking, 
by surpassing, making it further in Miami than Barty. Uh-huh. But since Barty's still alive and Osaka is not, mm-hmm. Barty remains number one. Okay. Moving on. Juan Martin Del Potro. The legend. The legend. The, the man. The fear hand. Thor's hammer. Himself. Exactly. He had his fourth knee surgery. Oh my God. He said he wants to really play the Olympics. And he said that without the fourth knee surgery, there is no way he can do it. Mm-hmm. Two questions. Do you think it was wise of him to even bother getting that fourth knee surgery to play tennis? I mean, I wish I had a little more expertise on the actual health of his knee, the specifics of his injury. But just from personal experience, uh, not just with myself, but, you know, all the athletes I've seen in my life and knee injuries, it's rare. It's rare. You come back and move how you used to move and perform how you used to perform. But in my opinion, if we're going to talk about of the last decade, players who without injury would be top tier elite athletes, Del Potro might be number one on my list for tennis players. So I have to support him, and I have to want to see him do well. I'm happy he got the surgery. I hope he has a crazy, amazing story and gets a gold medal at this Olympics because he has Thor's hammer as a forehand, and he used to have a solid backhand, you know, before all the wrist injuries. So let's see what happens. I know that he specifically said that he doesn't think his story is completely finished. Correct. And I hope he's right. So I'll be waiting and supporting honorable mention would be tommy haas one of my favorite players same i love tommy haas yeah i saw a recent video where he was practicing serve going uh before a match just warming up yeah rolled his ankle stepped on the ball in front of him gone for six months oh my gosh now you sort of answered the question but we do know that his main thing is to play in the olympics do you think he can have a run it's unlikely if you want me to be honest it's very unlikely uh, we have a few other guys on the tour who I think are in better shape and playing better tennis at the moment who are probably going to really prepare for that thing well. I just don't see Del Potro making a deep run at the Olympics unless for some somehow he gets a crazy draw. I don't remember how they do draws for the Olympics. It's still by ranking, basically. Okay, yeah, he's he's in trouble. He's in big trouble. Unless he has some sort of protective ranking. Yeah, and even then, protecting what, you know? Um, he's He's out of here, so... He's going to have to play completely out of his mind if he wants to win the Olympics. Right. Um, I just don't see it happening. There's too many guys playing mind-boggling tennis on the tour who can handle a premium Del Potro. I'm not going to say they'd beat him, but they give him a tough run for his money. I would think that if he, if he would have decided to do the surgery three months ago, yeah, I think he would have stood more of a chance. Mm-hmm. I think right now it's a little bit too late. I'm confused why he's barely having the surgery when there was no tennis season last year. Yeah, I I don't understand. But he has the tools. Everybody thought that after the wrist surgery, him not being able to drive the backhand, Uh that he was done. He proved everybody wrong. He improved his slice. He made it to the finals of the U.S. Open without a driving backhand. Right. So he has game. Unfortunately, he took too long, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't see it. Last comment. Is Corda the next American hopeful? According to Andy Roddick, he is. Andy Roddick is a very valuable, realistic, quality tennis player and spectator and analyst. 
I have a lot of respect for Andy Roddick. Andy Roddick is a really good analyst. If Andy Roddick's saying it, that is a word I believe in. So I haven't watched Corda closely. I've been following his recent tournaments. I know Dude, he's been very no. successful. How could you? I'm sorry, man. Corda is a beast. Yeah, of course. He of is course. 20 years old, mm-hmm. 6'4", smooth, mm-hmm. birdage, a smooth power. Yeah. No effort whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Marat Safin, compact backhand. Clean. With a smooth Tomas Burdich, easy, effortless power. Mm-hmm. You're missing out. I'm disappointed. Look, I watched his current draw or his current tournament. You know, I've, I've been keeping an eye on him. So I'm going to watch closer after hearing the Andy Roddick comments. He's had the tournament of his career. Mm-hmm. He played. The hottest man on tour, Aslan Karetsev. Mm-hmm. He beat him 3-0. and By the way, he also beat Aslan Karetsev in the French Open qualifiers. And made, made it to the fourth round quarter of mm-hmm. the French Open before losing to Nadal. That's a quality run. That's a great run. He had his first top 15 win by beating Fabio Fognini mm-hmm. after losing the first set. Got the composure and mm-hmm. won the next two. Mm-hmm. Beat Diego Schwartzman, his first top 10 win. Same thing. Lost the first set. Mm-hmm. Had the composure to come back. Um, what are your thoughts on Corda? From what I have seen, I just want to know if this is a, a temporary hot streak or a permanent performance thing. It was very similar to how I felt about Karetsev when I first saw him. I went, okay, this guy's hot. Where did he come from and how long will this last? Following up tournaments, he still looked great. I'm a fan of his now. I'm feeling very similar with Corda, but here's the difference. Corda had a terrible draw. Terrible draw. Uh, He has not had, in my opinion, an easy round by any means so far in this tournament. I haven't watched closely to judge his technical skill and all that, but I have watched highlights and, you know, just short versions of the matches. I do know his next round, if he wins this next round, he's playing He's playing, playing the hottest player on tour. Yeah, he's playing Rublev. Unless you count Djokovic, of course. Of course. Uh, if he takes out Rublev, we need to have a serious conversation next week. Um, that match is tomorrow. Um, so I'm looking forward to it. Do you have any hot takes or predictions there? That's a good one. Uh, Rublev's on fire. That's going to be a tough match. He's yeah. going to serve. He's going to have to serve in the 125, 128s consistently. Mm-hmm. He's averaging about 120. Uh-huh. He's going to have to serve harder than that in order to compete. Okay. If he serves that well, and if he wins that match, I expect him to have a great season. Period. Right. So, yeah, man. Now, uh, here's a, a little bit more. Here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Corda. Also, he's taking it extremely slow when it comes to the process. Mm. And I can respect somebody that has the process. Right. He, instead of going to Monte Carlo and qualifying, he's mm. playing challengers to, to uh, make his game better. Interesting. Now, do you know who else used to do that? Pete mm. Sanford. Pete Sanford, when he was a junior, he'd play up. When he was 12, there were times he played in the 16s mm. to perfect the game. And he had, if he lose in the third round, he's like, okay, well, I lost to somebody that's five feet, uh, five feet, five inches taller than me yeah. and stronger than me. Yeah. So 
I respect that. Yeah. And if you don't know, the Korda family are athletes. Mm-hmm. He has two sisters that are top golfers. One of them's four in the world. The other one is 18 in the world. That's insane. So that family is athletic. Technically athletic at that. Right. Yeah, that's impressive. All right. Well, uh, now, been... now, Uh oh. one more thing. If you've noticed, I've been mentioning Pete Sampras a lot. Yeah. Pete Sampras is my favorite player. Of course, as he, he should be. He made me start to play tennis. Mm-hmm. You accused me of being a Nadal fan. I'm not. I'm a Pete <laughs> Sampras fan. Now, I'm going to tell you a quick, quick story. Okay. When I was in high school, this guy had the Pete Sampras 95. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, he wants to throw the racket away. Hmm? He popped the strings and he wants to throw the racket away. And I'm all, dude, you're throwing it away? He's all, I'll give it to you for 20 bucks. I buy it. Uh-huh. All of a sudden, I go to string it. Person tells me, this is your last string. The frame is split. Yeah. You're done. I was livid. I wanted <laughs> to punch that guy in the face. <laughs> but it was the best two months of my life having a Pete Sampras racket. <laughs> so I don't care if I got stooped. That's how much it was for me to have a Pete Sampras racket. Hey, and that's you, how much of a fan I was. Yeah, you had a great stick, so... There you go. I'm not mad at it. So that concludes this uh, uh, podcast. I hope you guys were entertained.